Well, we want to welcome you back to PV Bible Alive. This is Bruce Hayes, your host, and I am the pastor of Parkview Baptist Church in Wichita, Kansas. This is a ministry of Parkview Baptist Church along with our website, pvbiblealive.com. So if you want to see further podcasts that we've put up on the website, then you can go there and look under uh, podcast on the homepage there and discover other Bible studies that we've done. Today we are finishing up the second part of a two-part series around the Christmas story, and the title of my message is Christmas According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I began the last sermon by quoting from all four of the Gospels, the first verses of those four Gospels, just to give you a, a flavor, an indication of how the Gospels are different. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham beget, uh, became the father of Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of Judah and his brothers. So Matthew starts with a genealogy. Mark, on the other hand, begins in verses 1 through 2 by saying, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, the announcer of the coming Christ. Luke, on the other hand, begins in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, by saying, Since many have undertaken to set in order a narrative concerning those matters which have been fulfilled among you, among us, even as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having traced the course of all things accurately from the first, to write to you in order, most excellent Theophilus. We're going to discuss Luke and the fact that he presents Jesus in an historic account of his life. John begins by saying in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the word... The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. You kind of get an indication of the differences between those four Gospels just by reading those first verses. And we've mentioned that there are four accounts of Jesus' life given in the Scripture. And discussed shortly last time the question, why these four? There could have been any number of other accounts of Jesus' life. And uh, some people have reasoned and said, well, the Gospel of Matthew is written to uh, reach the Jewish people, portray Jesus as the king of the Jews, and we discussed that. Mark was written to the Greeks or the Gentiles, Luke to the Romans, and John to the world. And there is some truth to that understanding of the purpose behind the Gospels, that each of them has a different target audience. But I believe the reason for the four Gospels has more to do with who they are written about rather than who they are written to. 
You see, each gospel is a portrait of Christ. Each tells us something different and essential to our understanding of him. In order for us to have a complete understanding of who Jesus is, we need to consider all four of the gospels and how they present him. So, in today's message, we're going to look at the last two of those Gospels. We looked at the first two in the previous message, so if you want to see that message or hear that message, you can go to pvbiblelive.com and look under Christmas according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it'll be part one. So, we're going to look at Luke and John. And with each, we're going to answer the same two questions that we ask regarding Matthew and Mark. Number one, how is this gospel different from the others? And number two, what does that tell us about the Christmas story? Well, as we start with Luke, I wanted to share with you something interesting that I discovered in my research. It seems that historically, and I told you this last time, Each of the Gospels has been associated with an animal, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Now, this idea dates back to the earliest of the Church Fathers. Now, you may say, well, you know, why did they do that, and and where did they get these four animals? Well, the four animals come from Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, You might remember that Ezekiel was given a vision of heaven and that when he was in heaven, he saw four angelic beings there. And it says that they they had different likenesses of their faces, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle. And so from the earliest times of the church, Different people have looked at the Gospels and said, well, Matthew is the uh, Gospel of, as I said, the, the lion. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. John is the Gospel of the eagle, because the eagle flies far above the earth, and John portrays Jesus as God in flesh, high above us. Well, I'm going to use that symbolism as a a way to help you understand these portraits of Christ in the Gospels. Um, Again, this is Scripture. This is not Scripture. These portraits, uh, the animals, are, are not Scripture. Outside of the description of Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, none of the others, Jesus isn't called an eagle anywhere or an ox, um, he is called a man, so that one's scriptural. But I'm going to use that symbolism today to talk about these four portraits of Christ in the Gospels. Um, and this is how I'm going to use them. And I already mentioned in Matthew, Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the promised King of the Jews. In Mark, Jesus is the suffering and sacrificed servant, like an ox. In Luke, Jesus is called the son of Adam, or the son of man. 
His human life is narrated as grounded in human history. So he is associated with man. And in John, Jesus' nature is described as having descended from heaven like the eagle. So that's what we're going to do. By the way, before we begin with Matthew, if you should happen to look this tradition up and do a search for it online, you'll find that the pairing of the animals with each gospel writer is different than what I have done with them. I switched the man, the lion, and the ox. The only one that uh, I kept the same as is traditional in regard to the gospel writers and church history is the eagle and John. You say, well, can you do that? Yeah, I can. Why? Because this is tradition, not scripture. Say, well, well, why did you switch them? Well, I switched them because I think they got it wrong. The preacher said arrogantly. (laughs) Um, Matthew, on the one hand, is paired with a man or an angel, traditionally. I don't see how you can not pair Matthew with the lion, because he is portrayed as a lion of the tribe of Judah. He is described as descended from the line of Judah, the line of David, the king. How you can not pair Matthew with a lion, in my humble opinion, entirely misses the symbolism that is obvious in Scripture. Um, John, of course, is the eagle, but uh, after they paired Matthew with the man, that kind of left the ox and the lion to be paired with Mark and Luke, and and it was kind of arbitrary after that. Um, The lion was paired with Mark, and they said, well, it's paired with Mark because... Uh, the, the lion is the king of the beast, and Jesus is uh, descended from royal dignity, and uh, John the Baptist started out the gospel by crying in the wilderness like a lion's roar. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, of all the gospels, I don't see how you say that Mark portrayed Jesus with royal dignity as opposed to Matthew, or even John portraying him as God. That's royal dignity. So how you take a lion and and pair it with Mark over the others, I think, is is, uh, just random. And then they paired Luke with the ox, because the the ox is a sacrificial uh, animal, and Jesus died, and so... um, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Again, though, how you ignore the fact that Luke describes Jesus as the son of man, the son of Adam, and so Jesus should be portrayed or or is portrayed as a man in Luke, um, is, again, beyond my understanding, because every one of the Gospels portrays Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. John 
Mark's gospel begins by Jesus or John the Baptist saying to Jesus to to his disciples, "Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." So if you're going to talk about a sacrificial animal, you could say that was John as well. Anyway, it just felt random to me. Uh, again, I, I would say, well, uh, it seems kind of arrogant on my part to contradict the early church fathers' sermons, but once more, that's what they were. They were sermons, and this is just symbolism, and I'm using it today and in the previous sermon for one express purpose. Uh I think it's important that you understand the portraits of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if it's helpful for you to relate an animal to each of those four Gospels, and that helps you remember, then I think we all come out in the, in the plus column. So today we're going to pick up with Luke and John. Now, just to give you a summary of, of how Luke is described in his portrayal of Jesus, I found uh, a reference at gty.org that that says this about Luke. Luke, the gospel, was addressed to a broader Gentile audience. As an educated Greek, Luke wrote using the most sophisticated literary Greek of any New Testament writer. He was a careful researcher and an accurate historian. Luke portrays Jesus as the Son of Man, a title appearing 26 times, the answer to the needs and hopes of the human race who came to seek and save lost sinners. A lot wrapped up in that summary, but a couple things that I wanted to draw out. And the main thing is when we ask the question, how is Luke different than the other Gospels? We would say Matthew portrayed Jesus as the promised king of the Jews, Mark as the suffering servant. If you're going to give Jesus a title from the Gospel of Luke, it would be the compassionate son of man. The compassionate son of man. That is, he describes Jesus as a human being, a man. Now, The quote I just read you a moment ago was that Luke wrote using the most sophisticated literary Greek of any New Testament writer. He was a careful researcher. And Luke makes Jesus a man. Luke portrays Jesus as a man, and he does so in a couple of ways. The first way that he does so, is by placing Jesus in history. You cannot help but read the Gospel of Luke and seeing that Jesus was an historic figure. He was not a myth. This wasn't something that the early church or the disciples made up. There are people today, generally people that are ignorant of history, and I mean that 
not that they are in it as an insult, but they just don't know history, who doubt that Jesus ever existed. Well, there is no way that you can look at history and and not understand that Jesus was a real man. Now, whether or not you're going to believe that he did all the things that he it was said about him, you can't come away and not understand either from reading the Gospels or the rest of history, that Jesus was real. Jesus was a real man. And that's what Luke does. Luke places Jesus in history. He was a real man. His life is not mythology. Now, the second way that Luke uh, portrays Jesus as the man is... He calls him the Son of Man, the Son of Man. He gives him a title. And so Luke is really emphasizing that manhood part. So that's why he's paired with a man in the study that that I'm doing here. Now, the first thing that we want to consider is the historic part, how Luke placed Jesus in history. You see, Luke is different than the other gospel writers. He is a researcher. Matthew is essentially, he takes the the Old Testament prophecies and he's trying to tie Jesus to, to Jewish prophecy regarding the Messiah. Mark is just trying to give you an action narrative of things that happened and and the power of Jesus. John's trying to portray Jesus as descended from heaven, and his nature is that he is God. Luke, on the other hand, wants you to to understand exactly when this took place. And so he places it meticulously in history. And you get that sense when you read the first four verses of the gospel. We read them a moment ago, but but listen to these just for a second and consider um, how much of an intellect Luke was. He begins his gospel by saying, Since many have undertaken to set in order a narrative concerning those matters which have been fulfilled among us, even as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having traced the course of all things accurately from the first, to write to you in order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty concerning the things in which you were instructed. That's all one sentence, by the way. What he's essentially saying is he researched this. He sat down with the eyewitnesses and made sure he got all the details correct. And so he's conveying to us that Jesus is a real human being, not some myth. Now, he's an accurate historian, and and you even get a better sense of that by going on to the very next verse in chapter 1. It says there, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the priestly division of Abijah. 
And then, now in those days, a decree, this is in chapter 2, went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This is the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, just in those two short verses, we have Luke pinpointing the life of Jesus Christ with the lives of three historic figures. Now, I'm sorry, four historic figures. Number one, he says, Jesus was born in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Jesus was born uh, in the days of Zacharias, who was a priest of Israel and was in the priestly division of Abijah. Jesus was born during the decree made by Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled, and that Quirinius was a governor of Syria at that time. Four historic pinpoints that help us really date the birth of Christ. You know, if it weren't for Luke's gospel, we would have a far less precise date regarding the birth of Jesus Christ. But because he laid it out exactly who was in control, who was ruling in these different areas at the time of Jesus' birth, we have a very uh, pretty solid understanding of when Jesus was born, the time period that was taking place. Herod, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, and Zacharias. So let's take those one at a time. First off, we got Herod. Jesus was born during the reign of Herod. We know that Herod uh, started reigning in the area of Judea um, after he overthrew the Hasmonean Antigonus in a three-year-long war between 37 and 34 BC. And he ruled uh, with the permission, the authority of Rome until his death in 4 BC. Now we also know that the story of Jesus tells us that the reason that Mary and Joseph fled with with the baby Jesus to Egypt was because Herod wanted to kill him, viewed him as a threat to his throne, and that once they were in Egypt, they were there for a time, and that shortly after that, they heard that Herod was dead, and so they could then return to Israel. So we obviously know that they had to be in Egypt and at around 4 BC. And therefore, we can date the birth of Jesus to be around 4 BC, sometime before that. Now let's get a little bit more specific, because Luke also tells us that during the reign of Caesar Augustus, there was a um, law passed 
that everyone was to participate in a census. So we know, for example, that Caesar Augustus started his reign in 27 BC and that almost immediately he passed a law mandating a census for every 14 years to take place. Just like here in the United States, we have a census every 10 years. There wasn't just one census. Caesar said, we're going to do a census every 14 years. So Caesar Augustus reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Since the census was the thing that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, we have another means of dating Jesus' birth. So Mary was pregnant with Jesus when they uh, left Nazareth to go to Bethlehem to participate in the census. There's a third person mentioned here, Quirinius. Um, he is officially called Publius Supilcius. I'm getting that wrong, Quirinius. And he was governor, and that's a generic term, by the way. It, isn't, it wasn't an official Roman title. And uh, that he was governor over Syria at the time when this census was mandated. And we also know that uh, Zacharias was a priest in the order of Abijah at the time of Jesus' birth. We'll get back to him in a second, but all of these help us narrow down the time when Jesus was born. Now, for a long time, um, there was a lot of doubt cast on Luke. Not only on Luke, but the entire Bible. Seems as though those who were choosing not to believe Scripture were always trying to determine some way of casting doubt on its truth. And what happened with the story of Jesus' birth was the same as it had always happened. They looked at the account of Luke and said, well, Luke got it all wrong. He, uh, he says that Quirinius was governor and that during that census, that was the time that Jesus was born. Now, for a long time, through, through uh, history or historic studies, there was a famous census uh, that took place in A.D. 6. And it was famous as associated with Quirinius. Quirinius was known for having participated in, in, uh, in facilitating that census. But he was also famous in that he quelled a rebellion afterward because the Jewish people didn't want to participate in a census. So he had to deal with the rebellion after it was over. And so what historians said for, for many years was, well, look, Luke got this wrong. Because obviously, if the census that Quirinius oversaw was in A.D. 6, 
And if Herod died in 4 BC, we're talking about 10 years difference. There's no way that Jesus could have been born during the reign of Herod, who we know died in 4 BC, and also born during the census, which we know took place in AD 6. Well, amazingly, even after doubt was cast on Luke for so many years, um, there was a fragment of stone discovered in Tivoli, Rome. This fragment of stone was discovered in 1764. And it was a stone that had an inscription on it in honor of a Roman official. And it states on that fragment that this Roman official was the governor of Syria and Phoenicia twice during the reign of Augustus. Let me say that again. He was governor twice. So now this starts to make a little sense. There was somebody who was the governor two times. Well, if you look at what that stone says, and you look at the uh, account of the life of Quirinius, the details that are associated with Quirinius match up perfectly with the details of this person that was supposed to have been a ruler twice, a governor twice under the rule of Augustus. And so we can obviously state that not only was Quirinius governor in AD 6, but that he was governor before that time at some point as well. Now, that's great. Why is that great? Because in 1764, what the Bible has to say was validated. What Luke had to say was validated. Um, and the fact that Luke is an historian par excellence is validated as well. So, right now we have Herod, we have Caesar Augustus, we have Quirinius, and they're all coming together. And they followed through with a census that was to be taken every 14 years. Now, there have been some issues in regard to that census. Uh, if you take Caesar Augustus the time that he began ruling in 27 BC. And then you go 14 years out from there to what would have been the second census. Then uh, you end up and the, the time periods do not match up. Um, if Jesus, Jesus had to have been born uh, it couldn't have been born any earlier than 6 B.C., and probably even 4 B.C. is better. Well, how do you end up with a solution for that? Well, 
most postulate that Augustus Caesar proclaimed that the census was to take place and that his proclamation took place in 8 BC. That that ties in with the timetable that we have for when the census, those census took place. But that the region of Judea didn't go along with it. They didn't cooperate for two to four years. Uh, It was actually, the census was carried out two to four years after the decree came out. But what that does is tells us that Luke has grounded the birth of Jesus Christ in some very historic events. You can also look at, for example, the life of Zacharias. He also tells us that Zacharias was of the priestly division of Abijah. And you say, well, what's a priestly division of Abijah? Well, there were 24 divisions, or you could say groups, of those who were priests in Israel. The whole tribe of Levi were the priests of Israel. So what they did is because the temple was in Jerusalem, and the temple had to be continually serviced year-round, just like any building. And uh, because they had certain sacrifices and ceremonies and things that they had to do, um, the temple had to be serviced and, and, and its ministry had to be done. So they divided up the priest, the entire tribe of Levi, into 24 divisions. 24 divisions. And then they set a schedule. Every week, a different division was to be at the temple taking care of the business that needed to be taken care of. Now, there were also times during the year when there was a feast um, or a festival that every priest had to be at, where they had to all be in attendance. So, a priest would serve more than just one week during the year. But they scheduled the remaining weeks of the year based on those 24 divisions. The priest would serve in the temple one week, and uh, then they would go back home and just live out and do their regular occupation. Well, So when did the division of Abijah serve? Because that's what it says that Zacharias was. He was of the division of Abijah. Because if we can determine when Zacharias served in the temple, then we can reasonably determine the date of John the Baptist's birth. And since Jesus was conceived six months after John, we can determine the time of his birth. Well, if Abijah was the first division, and many believe it was, then Zacharias would have served at the temple in late May. If Elizabeth conceived very shortly after that, in other words, Zacharias goes into the temple, the angel says to Zacharias, you're going to have a son, Elizabeth's going to give you a son. Uh, After his week is over serving the temple, he goes home immediately. Elizabeth conceives, then uh, the conception would have taken place in early June. 
We know that Jesus' conception was six months after John the Baptist's conception, because it tells us that in the Gospel of Luke. So that means Jesus' conception would have been in December, which means Jesus would have been born in September. Now, I think that's remarkable. Now, let me tell you this. There are a lot of ifs in all of that. We don't know for sure that the uh, division of Abijah served first. We don't know for sure that Zacharias immediately went home and that Elizabeth immediately conceived. We don't know, uh, we don't know a lot of those things. It's a, it's a big if. But what is remarkable to me is that Luke works so diligently to make sure you understand Jesus wasn't born in some mythological setting with talking animals or dragons. Jesus wasn't born out of the thigh of a god or, or, or any of the other things that are portrayed in, in many of the myths of Greece or Rome or the Norse myths, any of those things. Jesus was born at a very distinct time in history, a time that we can pinpoint. He was born while Herod the Great reigned. He was born while Caesar Augustus reigned. And when Caesar Augustus had instituted a census that took place every 14 years. He was born while Quirinius was a governor in Syria. And he was born after the division of Abijah when Zacharias would have served in the temple. And so that you can literally lay out down to a very precise time, a conceivable arguable time for Jesus' birthday. Now, I don't think it matters whether Jesus was born in September or December. I don't think that's important. But the thing that is important is that Luke is showing us that Jesus was a real man. He was really born in history as a baby. And it is verifiable by this account and the other accounts in the other Gospels. Now, the second way in which Luke portrays Jesus as a man. Again, remember, we're using those symbols. The, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. The second way Jesus is portrayed as a man is... Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is called the Son of Man. Son of Man. Now, that term just means a, a man. Uh, it's used in the Old Testament talking about prophets at different times. He just, it's just a designation saying that somebody is a human being. You're a son of man. You're a human being. And so when it says Jesus is the Son of Man, that's the first thing that it means. He's just a human being. Really, 20, uh, 29 times 
in the, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is called the Son of Man. And here are just some of the times, just to give you uh, an understanding of that. Luke chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Jesus actually said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, arise, take up your cot, and go to your house. Then it goes on to say in Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed the third day raised again. Luke nine fifty six. For the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So basically, that title means two things. Number one, it just means he's a human being. If you look at Luke's genealogy of Jesus, Matthew has a genealogy of Jesus that traces Jesus back to King David. So it uh, tells you that Jesus was in the line of the kings, but it also traces his lineage back to Abraham, telling you that Jesus was a Jew. Luke, on the other hand, traces Jesus' genealogy clear back to Adam, the first man. If you read Luke chapter 3, the genealogy is there, but verse 38, uh, the last part of it says the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke very expressly wants you to know that Jesus was a man. He was born of a woman. He is a man. Now, but there's a second meaning behind the the term, the title, the Son of Man. It doesn't just mean a man. The title was used in the book of Daniel in a prophecy about somebody that was going to come. Let me read that to you. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. I saw the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of the sky one like a Son of Man, and he came even to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Dominion was given him, and glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one which will not be destroyed. So in Daniel, there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah, and he is called a son of man. So when Jesus goes around referring to himself as the son of man, He's directly tying himself to that prophecy, the one that would have an everlasting dominion, which would not pass away. Um, so those two things are what the, the term Son of Man means. So here's our second question. The first question is, um, how is Luke different than the other Gospels? The second is, what does this tell us about the Christmas story? Well, when we consider that Jesus was the Son of Man, what that tells us about the Christmas story is that Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. He came to be one of us. He identified with us. He is called a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He's called one whom all point he was in all points tempted as we are. 
And I think it's no coincidence that Luke's Christmas account captures the emotions of the people who participated in its drama. Matthew's account is kind of matter of fact. This happened, then this happened, then that. But Luke, you have a lot of people uh, in extreme fear and a lot of people in extreme joy. Luke, uh, that very first place where the angel appeared to Zacharias, for example, says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar, and Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him. And the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your request has been heard, and Elizabeth is going to have a son. Um, Same thing when the angel appeared to Mary, the angel Gabriel. It says that when she heard the greeting of the angel, rejoiced, highly favored one, that she was greatly troubled and considered what kind of salutation it might be. And the angel said, don't be afraid, for you've found favor with God. A lot of emotion. And Mary, after she gets this announcement, goes into the hill country to visit Elizabeth. And it says as soon as she greeted Elizabeth, um, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt. And she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she said, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Uh, For behold, when the voice of your greeting came into my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. Uh, Fearfulness and joy, a lot of emotion. We get to the story of the shepherds. The shepherds were in the field. The angels appeared to them, and it says they were terrified. And the angel said, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. Today in the city of David is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And uh, then it says the angels were singing glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so these shepherds said, let's go to Bethlehem. And they went and they saw the baby. And it says, after they saw the baby, they publicized widely the saying which was spoken to them, and all that heard them wondered the things which were spoken by the shepherds. You can you can feel the fear. You can feel the joy in these accounts. They, it, it's just a, a lot of pathos, I guess you could describe it here. And so John is this gospel that portrays Jesus as the man that's come among us. He's come to bring us joy. And that's what fits into this Christmas story. John, on the other hand, we get to the second gospel that we consider this this afternoon. John was... The last gospel writer, and the summary of his gospel from gty.org says, The last gospel written emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ. That means Jesus is God. John wrote to strengthen the faith of believers and to appeal to unbelievers to come to faith in Christ. And so we ask the same questions that we've asked before. 
How is the Gospel of John different than the other Gospels? And how does that relate to the Christmas story? So how was John different than the other Gospels? Well, if you were to give Jesus a title according to his portrayal in the book of John, you could call him the Son of God, God the Son. The Son of God, God the Son. First off, he's the Son of God. Let's go back to that idea of the eagle. Um, The eagle is a majestic animal, flies far above the earth, somewhat mysterious, descends down from the heights. All of those things are portrayal of how Jesus is shown in the Gospel of John. So, first off, Jesus is the Son of God. That's a title that's used frequently in John's Gospel. Um, Fifteen times in in John's Gospel, he is called the Son of God. Only eleven times in Luke, nine times in Matthew, four times in Mark. So here's a few times that he's called the Son of God. Luke, or I'm sorry, John chapter one verse eighteen. No one has seen God at any time. The one and only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. He's called the Son of God by John, the author of the book of John himself. He's also called the Son of God by John the Baptist in John one thirty four. John says, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. He's called the Son of God by Nathanael. When Jesus calls Nathanael to be his disciple, uh, in John chapter 149, Nathanael says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus himself calls himself the Son of God. John chapter 3 verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who doesn't believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Peter calls him the Son of God in John chapter 6, verse 69. Peter says, We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then John, again, the author John, writes, saying, in chapter 20, verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John portrays Jesus as the Son of God. The Son of God. Well, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? I mean, you may read that and at first glance think that it indicates that Jesus was a created being, indicating that Jesus didn't exist at one time and that the Father brought him into existence. That's our normal way of thinking about a son. Well, that's not what John is doing. We know it's not what John is doing because John, at the very start of his gospel, which we've already read, said that Jesus was the Word that the Word was with God and the Word was God, and that the Word created all things, and without Him nothing was created that has been created. So from the very start of the Gospel of John, the author says, Jesus Christ is God. 
He is the creator of everything. Tying Jesus Christ to what happened in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created heavens and earth, and he's saying that Jesus is God. So he can't be saying that by Jesus taking the title Son of God, that it's indicating that Jesus was created. I mean, you could say that in his humanness, he is the son or offspring of Mary and God. And what I mean by that is his human body was created by God, even as ours are created by God. But he's different. Our conception, both our body and soul came into existence. When I was born, I did not exist in any fashion before my conception. I was not a spirit before I entered, uh, before I was conceived. There was, I, I didn't exist. But at Jesus' conception, only his pre-birth body was created. In other words, the physical body, the physical aspect of himself. He, God the Son, had eternally existed with the Father and the Spirit and dwelt that body. In other words, the Spirit of God the Son entered into the body which was created to be his home for those years that he dwelt in this world. But that doesn't tell us why he's called the Son of God either, entirely. The Son of God meant more to a Jewish person at that time than just being born as a baby. To be called someone's son was more than just, well, you know, I beget somebody. To be called someone's son was to declare that person as having equal authority as the Father, and to be the one who would inherit all things from the Father. It was a title of authority. It, that meant that when Jesus is called the Son of God, it's declaring Jesus' equality with God, and that he inherits all things from God, all power and all authority. Now, how do we know that Jesus, when he took that title, um, that's what he was indicating about himself? Well, he explains it to a degree, but also the Jewish people themselves who were opposed to Jesus knew that's what he meant. That when he called himself the Son of God, he was claiming equality with God. In John chapter 5, verse 17 Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. And then it goes on to say, in verse 18, after he said that, that is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood what he was saying. Pilate, when Jesus was on trial, said to him, 
or said to the Jews, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Now that's an interesting statement. They wanted to put him to death because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now were they wanting to put him to death because he claimed that he was born from God, created by God? No. There's no law against saying you are the Son of God in that you are created by God. However, it was a capital crime for Jesus to make himself equal to God. The law of Moses says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord will surely be put to death. So, if you look at the charge they made against him, they said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So they obviously understood that Jesus, by claiming to be the Son of God, he was claiming to be equal to God. And to them, that was blasphemy. It cannot be that when Jesus took on himself the name Son of God, that he was just claiming to be God's creation. I mean, the Jews were not trying to put him to death for claiming to be God's creation. They themselves would have claimed that. But it was that when he called himself the Son of God, he was putting himself on equal footing with God, making himself God. So Jesus is called the Son of God repeatedly in the Gospel of John. But he is also God the Son. Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son. Over and over again, Jesus claims to be God. It's uh, an undeniable fact from the text of, of the Scripture. You, there are cultic groups that try and rewrite the text, but you cannot destroy the fact of what Jesus' claims were. We've already read in chapter 1, verse 1, that it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And if you jump to verse 14, if you want to know who the Word is that made everything that was God, it says, The Word became flesh and lived among us. We saw his glory, such glory as the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Obviously, the Word is Jesus, and the Word is God. If you go on to chapter 5 of John, verse 17 through 18, Jesus said this, My Father is still working, so I am working too. Because he said that, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but because he made himself equal with God. John eight fifty seven through 59 The Jews said to him, are you, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? 
And Jesus said to them, Most certainly I tell you, before Abraham came into existence, I am. The words I am were taken from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. In that passage of Scripture, God tells Moses what his name is. He says, My name is I am that I am. Tell them that I am sent you. So when Jesus says here, Before Abraham was, I am, he is taking on himself the name of God. We know that he's doing that because right after it, it says, The Jews took up stones to stone him. Why? Because he took on himself the name of God. But Jesus was hidden and went into the temple. So that's chapter 8, verse 57 through 59. Chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said this, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And again, look what the Jews do. They take up stones to stone him. Jesus says to them, I've shown you many good works from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? They answered, We don't stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They knew what he's doing. They knew what he was saying. Chapter 14, verse 9, 8 and 9, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you such a long time and you don't know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? So, John portrays Jesus as the Son of God, God the Son. Well, that's John's portrayal. What does that tell us about the Christmas story? Well, we know that there's no real, you know, quote-unquote Christmas story in John. We don't have wise men or shepherds. We don't have Mary giving birth. We don't hear about Joseph or Herod or any of those stories. The manger, Bethlehem. All we have is this chapter that begins John by saying that Jesus came from eternity past. And then immediately it jumps into the story of John the Baptist and the proclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God. But I think the Gospel of John really summarizes the Christmas story for us. And and it does so in this way. We know that Matthew describes Jesus as a king. Luke, or Mark, describes him as a servant. Luke describes him as a man. And all of those pictures are, are important and essential to understanding who Jesus is and what the Christmas story means. Uh, but they're not complete until you portray Jesus as God. The baby that is born at Christmas would become the kingly lion of the tribe of Judah. He would also labor tirelessly for us like the ox uh, and be the servant 
who is sacrificed for our sins, according to the Gospel of Luke. He is the baby who became a man like we are men. He became one of us, like is portrayed in the Gospel of Luke. But here's the deal. Kings and lions and servants and oxen and men are all bound to this earth. They are earthly creatures. The picture of the Christ is not complete until we look at the eagle. You see, an eagle in the Bible, one of the very specific ways that uh, the eagle is portrayed. I looked at a number of scriptures that had the eagle in it. For instance, Job thirty-nine twenty-seven. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? The eagle is portrayed as kind of the king of all high things. He's way up in the distance where he cannot be reached by mankind. The eagle is described as mysterious. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 19 says, The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maiden. In this passage of scripture, the writer of Proverbs is saying, there's some things I don't understand in life. And those are the things that he lists. And one of them is the way of the eagle in the air. In other words, he looks up at an eagle flying and, and is like, I don't, I don't understand how he does that. That's beyond me. That's beyond my comprehension. And so the eagle is portrayed as mysterious. It is portrayed as the king of high things. Uh, and the eagle as well is used to portray a heavenly power that can swoop in and save. A power with great speed and no boundaries outside the reach of men. The eagle is actually often used to describe God. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, it says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Deuteronomy 32.11 says, As an eagle that stirs up her nest that flutters over her young, he spread abroad his wings, he took them, he bore them on his feathers. He's portraying God protecting Israel. Isaiah 40.31 Many of you know this passage. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not grow faint. It's talking about power, strength. In Revelations 12, 14, two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, that she might be nourished for a time and a times, half a time from the face of the serpent. What's portraying there is that uh, the Jewish people are going to be saved during the tribulation period, or at least a portion of them, and that they will be carried by God into the wilderness to protect them for the three and a half years of the great tribulation. And the way it describes his protection is that he will bear them on the wings of an eagle. You carry them into the wilderness. And so the eagle is described as this power from on high. 
How does this relate to the Christmas story? You see, God, when when he determined to save us and to send someone to save us, he could have sent a king, okay? He could have sent an ordinary king. And our problem was sin. We, from the time of Adam, have had the sin nature within us. We are bent to follow our own selfish ways. And so we needed redemption from that sin. We needed a salvation and an atonement. He could have sent a king to us. And the king could have stood in front of us and commanded us to cease sinning. You know, a power that says, stop doing what you're doing. He could have also done what was described in Luke. He could have sent us servants. Or a mark, I'm sorry. In Mark, Jesus was doing and doing and doing and doing and going. Always serving people. And being a sacrifice for people. And he could have sent a servant to remind us of what the right way is. To work for us to ensure that our burden wasn't too heavy. He could have sent uh, that kind of servant to us. He could have sent a man or a servant who would be a sacrifice for us. He also could have sent an army of men. Just like Luke is portraying Jesus as a man. He could have sent us an army of men, preachers, teachers, counselors, all these people to remind us of what God requires, to encourage us, to give us strategies about how to live right, to come alongside of us, to help us in any way that we needed it. And the thing is, he did. The Bible is full of the accounts of people that God sent to call people away from sin. He sent us kings. He sent us servants. He sent us men. He sent us all kinds of people. But here's the truth of the matter. It wasn't enough. It didn't work. It's not enough to just tell us that we need to quit sinning. It's not enough to try and help us to quit sinning. It's not enough to... uh, use all of human faculties, even if a man died for us, he could do no more than cover his own sins. Even if a perfect man died for us, he could do no more than to cover one person's sins. But Jesus came. And the reason that he was able to bring us salvation is because he was not only the king, he was not only the servant, he was not only a man, he was also God. And so his death would bring the eternity of forgiveness that was necessary for all people to come to salvation. We needed a solution with a heavenly origin. We needed help from on high. We needed to be born on eagles' wings. We needed a savior from heaven. We needed God himself. He is the king of kings. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb of God. He is the servant of humanity. He is the son of man. He is the son of God who comes down and carries us away on eagles' wings. We need all four Gospels. 
to know who Jesus really is. And that's why we have four of them to tell us the Christmas story. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for your word. And we thank you that we got these four portrayals, these four portraits of Jesus Christ. Lord God, we pray that you help us to come to a full understanding of who you are in all your aspects so we can come to a knowledge of what salvation truly means. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.